And if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, open them to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, our text this morning will be verses 31 through chapter 9, verse 1. I've titled this morning's message, It Will Cost You Everything. And we will see from this passage that to be a follower of Jesus Christ will cost you everything. Follow along with me and hear the Word of God read. And he, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. This ends the reading of the Word of God. We need to understand what's going on here in Mark's narrative. In order to do so, we need to enter into this scene. We need to put the glasses of the disciples on. We need to look through the disciples' eyes to understand the magnitude of what's being communicated here. So we need to get in our time machine and go back 2,000 years and smell the, 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 the air and, and, and walk the road and hear these words from the perspective of the disciples in order to rightly understand the significance of what Jesus is saying here. So let us enter into this scene. We picked it up in verse 31, but it doesn't begin there. No, it starts back a little bit sooner. Jesus asks the question, who do people say that I am? And Peter hits the home run. Peter slam dunks it. He hits the hole in one, if you want to call it that. He answers the question correctly. He says that you are the Christ, as Matthew would add, the Son of the living God. And so we're coming off this high point with Peter's great confession. You are the Messiah. You are the long-promised one. You are finally here. All of this Old Testament was pointing to this very moment. And Peter has recognized it because it has been revealed to him by God that Jesus is the Christ. And so we have this high point that's going on here. You would notice Peter in verse 29 of Mark chapter 8 makes the confession. And Jesus doesn't do anything but charges them not to say anything. 
It's as though Jesus says, yes, right, you are right in your confession here. But this is why it is so important to understand what happens in verses 31 to 33, which is gospel confusion. We are coming off the heels of Peter's great confession, and Jesus sees the need that he must begin to tell his disciples what is about to take place concerning his life. Over the course of the next three chapters in Mark, he will three different times foretell his death and resurrection. And the reason is obvious why he repeats this. The disciples don't understand. And we see this by what Peter does here in this account. They're not understanding. So Jesus, follow along with me in verse 31, he opens up and he began to teach them that the Son of Man, let's not overlook this title that Jesus uses. This is, this is a, a, looking back to Ezekiel. All throughout Ezekiel, he is referred to as the Son of Man. And Jesus takes the title of Ezekiel and he takes the title of, of Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, where the Son of Man is standing before the Ancient of Days and all authority and power has been given unto him. And so he rightly understands that Jesus, Jesus rightly understands he is the Son of Man. This is a divine title that Jesus uses here. And he explains to them four truths that they must grasp and comprehend. And this is the first mention of Jesus's, from the mouth of Jesus, what is to take place in his life. Notice these four truths that outline the path of the Christ. First, he tells them that the Christ, the Son of Man, must first suffer many things. Now remember, we're the disciples here, and we're hearing Jesus say this. After the great confession that he is the Christ, he's the Messiah, he's the anointed one of God, he's the one who's going to restore the fortunes of Israel, he's the one who's going to bring in the kingdom of God. They're very excited. They're very, they're very optimistic about being with the Christ at this point. And he says, he must suffer many things. Well, the disciples must be thinking, as we would think if we enter this scene, that's not hard to grasp. No, if we think about suffering many things, they say, well, we've seen him suffer. We've been with him now for probably two years. In fact, some of his suffering is our fault. Guys, remember when we were on the boat after he fed 5,000 people with just a few loaves and some fish? We had one piece of bread and we were worried. And Jesus says, do you not get it? Well, we've probably caused him to suffer a bit. We get it, we get it. He might suffer many things. That's not hard to believe. So there's the first truth that Jesus tells them concerning the path of the Christ. Second, he tells them, he's going to be rejected. They're thinking, well, this, this too is not hard to grasp. We've seen this. We, Peter, you remember when we were paired up two by two and we went through the towns and sometimes we had to dust the this dirt off our feet, the, uh, the, the, the dirt, because we were rejected. Some people accepted the message. Some, we've been rejected. Of course Christ is going to be rejected. Remember when we went to Nazareth and, and, and he goes into the synagogue and, and you remember he took the scroll of Isaiah and he opens it and this messianic uh, statement that he's made there and, and the people of the town looked and said, who is this guy? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Prophet is not without honor except in his hometown. Yeah, of course we understand that Jesus is going to be rejected. The scribes and Pharisees, they've been after him from the very beginning. And they looked at each other, well, it's because he's better than them. So they're after him. Of course, we understand 
that the Son of Man will suffer and be rejected. And then Jesus says the third thing, and be killed. And they're like, yeah, well, if we, wait, wait, what? I'm, he's going to be suffer. He's going to be rejected. And now he says he's going to be killed? We, I don't think we heard him right. Are you sure about this? There must be thinking at this point, no, 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 no. That's not how it works. You are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. What do you mean you're going to be killed? We know that's exactly what Peter is thinking by the way he responds to Jesus. It says, oh, Peter, my, even in this moment, they heard this thinking, far be it from you, Lord. You are to restore the fortunes of Israel. And then notice the fourth thing that Jesus says in verse 31 concerning the path of the Christ. And after three days, rise. And they're thinking, wait, what? You're going to be killed? It's as though they never even heard the fourth truth that Jesus said here. Mark makes it very clear. He wants it to be extremely clear. Look at verse 32. He spoke this to them plainly. This wasn't a parable. This wasn't a metaphor. This wasn't a cryptic saying. He said this very plainly to them. Have you ever been in a conversation with someone and you hear something said and you lock in on that one thing that was said and they keep talking and all you hear is Charlie Brown's teacher? You've heard that thing that was said in the conversation and all you're fixated on is how you're going to respond to what that person said to you and you don't hear anything else that comes out of their mouth? That's happened to me. This is exactly what has happened here with the disciples. They're so fixated. Okay, suffer, rejection, we got that. Be killed? They don't hear the fourth part. No. This is what happens. Look here at verse 32. And Peter, hold your breath now. Peter, the one who just made this great confession, you are the Christ, You are the son of the living God. Now, Peter walks up to Jesus and basically says, hey, come with me. Come with me. We got to talk. Suffering, rejection, I get it. I get it. Be killed? That's not the plan. How can we make Israel great again if you die? That's not the plan. What do you mean? It's as though Peter is looking at Jesus and thinking, hey, listen, I've kind of been around a little bit longer. It's probably likely that Peter is the oldest of the group. Sometimes he's taking his age and thinking, hey, I can speak into this guy. I'm older than him. So he goes up to him. I've been around a little longer than you. I have a bit more experience. I'm, I'm the married one here. I've gone through life a little bit. Let me give you some advice, Jesus. You can't be telling people that you're going to die. That's not a good, that's not a good way to a following Jesus. I mean, who wants to walk with you, Jesus, on a death mission? Jesus, I left my fishing business. I left a lot of it behind. My wife is back home in Capernaum. I've been following you, and now you're telling us for the first time you're going to die? I mean, everyone's going to die at some point, but not. no, you're the Christ. I won't let that happen, Jesus. Peter's thinking, we can't help but look at Peter. And just say, oh, Peter, you're so confused. But we can only say that because we know how the story ends. Enter into that scene. You've given your life to follow this man. You've seen mighty works done. 
you have seen lives changed. You have seen pain and suffering get turned around, and you are thinking, man, we are on the way to glory, and we've been called by him to follow him. There's a high optimism here. So hearing this from Jesus, it's more than just taking the air out of the balloon. So confused is Peter. And we want to just ask the question, has Isaiah 53 never crossed your mind? Where Isaiah, some 800 years before this event is taking place, is foretelling us the suffering servant of what's going to happen to the anointed of God. What is going to happen to the Messiah? That he was bruised for our transgressions. That he was crushed for our iniquities. You know in the synagogue, when they do their reading through Isaiah, they skip chapter 53 today because it reflects so much of Jesus Christ. It is not read in the Jewish synagogue. He was bruised for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. What is that telling us? The suffering servant is going to die. It would go on to say that he was cut off out of the land of the living. What we see here right now in Peter is gospel confusion. Peter sees the crown but not the cross. Peter has a theology of glory that comes before a theology of the cross. And what happens in verse 33? Jesus turns to him. Jesus turns to him in the presence of all of the disciples and publicly puts Peter into his place. He rebukes him. And in rebuking Peter, he is actually correcting all of them. They all had these thoughts. They just nudge Peter and say, you, you, you're the spokesman. You tell him. And notice what he says to him. Get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, you devil. The deceiver, the slanderer, the serpent of old. This isn't nice, and it's intentionally not to be. It is as though Jesus is saying to Peter, in this moment, you are speaking as though you are the devil himself. You are not thinking on the things of God, but on man. Why? What's the issue at hand here? Let me show you three things that Peter did. First, Peter placed himself in front of Jesus. Hence, Jesus says, get behind me. You're not to be in front of me. You're not leading this. You can't bear this. So Peter first places himself in front of Jesus. Then Peter tries to dissuade Jesus from his mission. This is the work of the devil. This has always been the case. When there's a promise in Genesis 3.15 that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent, the devil works in Cain to try to crush the seed of the woman. And thinking he succeeds in Abel, only to find out God's plan was through Seth. And it goes on forever between the, the, the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. He's, Peter's trying to dissuade Jesus from his mission. Peter is focused on comfort, triumph, and glory. This is the problem that we see here. This is exactly what Satan did to Jesus in Matthew chapter 4. Remember Jesus, after his baptism, goes into the wilderness. And the tempter, he's first called the tempter. Then he's called the devil, comes to him. And what does he do? He tempts him. He wants bread for comfort. He tells him to call down angels. This is triumph. And he says, you can gain the whole world. This is glory. Peter is thinking just like 
the serpent did. This is gospel confusion. And don't just look at Peter and think it happened there. This happens in our world today. It's not that people want to outright reject Jesus and the gospel. Ask somebody if they want to go to heaven when they die, and they're going to tell you yes. Ask someone if they want to be forgiven from all that they have done, and they're going to tell you yes. Ask somebody if they want to be loved unconditionally, and they will say yes. No sane person says no to those things. It's not outright rejection of the gospel that's the problem. It's confusion. It's a partial gospel. It's a gospel of comfort, triumph, and glory at the expense of a cross. I believe that much of what is solicited as a gospel in many evangelical churches is a crossless gospel. It is a crown but no cross. It is glory but no agony. They want exaltation before humility. Comfort without conformity. Triumph but no trials. A God that loves everything, hates nothing, and gives all, yet requires very little. A Jesus that heals, saves, and grants every one of the wishes. A gospel that fits nicely into my already established life. A gospel that costs very little, but gives high returns. So what happens when we have this gospel confusion? The appeal becomes that of a salesman. Come to Jesus to get fixed. Come to Jesus and everything will get better. Just try him out. 30-day money-back guarantee. If you aren't satisfied, at least you gave it a shot. You will never find that in the Bible. Cross, suffering, agony, who wants that stuff? Peter doesn't. You can have your best life now. This is gospel confusion, and it started with Peter. So now Jesus sees it fit in verses 34 through 37 to provide some clarity. He turns up the dial to 10, and he gives us gospel commitment. Notice here in verse 34, we read, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples. This, what Jesus is about to say is so important that it's not going to be just for the twelve. Everybody that has ears to hear needs to hear this. So Jesus calls everybody within earshot, come, hear what I'm about to say. This is the most important thing you will ever hear in your life. All with ears to hear, come. And he opens up his gospel commitment and says, if anyone would come after me, what that means is to be a disciple. To come after Christ is, is in a sense only, in a sense, to be a Christian. You see, Peter needed to step back and he needed to come after Christ and stop putting himself before Christ. To be a follower of Jesus is to put Jesus before you and for you to come after him. And Jesus will give us here in verse 34 three criteria to be a disciple. And the first one he says is to deny self. He says, let him deny himself. So deny self. Then he says, die to self. Take up his cross. And then the third, he says, to devote yourself. Follow me. So in summary, what Jesus is saying here in verse 34 is that it will cost you everything. It will cost you everything. The call of Christ upon the life of any person is all of you. Every ounce of who you are. All of your being 
Christ requires of you to be his disciple, to be his follower. So let's look at what these criteria are in verse 34. First, he says, deny self. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. What this really literally means is refuse yourself. One commentator says, it's not self-rejection or self-hatred, nor is it even the disowning of particular sins. It is to renounce the self as the dominant element in life. It is to place the divine will before self-will. This phrase to deny is the same word that was used when Peter denied Christ. It's as though you say, I don't know the person. I don't know that person. It is a radical abandonment of one's identity and self-determination. It is simply not living for yourself. It is to deny self. How else would we explain this? It is a sustained willingness to say no to yourself in order to say yes to God. Practically speaking, if we are to obey this command to be followers of Jesus, to seek out this gospel commitment, we must be able to say, I am not my own. I have been bought with a price. I live for another. He has taken my life, and he has given me his. This begins at conversion. Repentance is turning from self. But you don't just turn away from self, you turn to God. You turn to the gospel. You turn in faith and trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ. You become a follower of Jesus. So you turn from the path of of life that you're walking down, which is self-fulfillment, which is self-gratification, which is self is the dominant, and you say, I must deny myself, turn from my sins, turn from the life where I am the single uh, prime example or prime... beneficiary of all that I do. It's all me, me, me. And you turn and you say, my life is for God. I'm going to deny myself and I'm going to turn to God, trusting in the gospel and follow after Jesus. It's not believing an ethic or saying yes to the facts. It's following a person. It's doing as Jesus did. It is obeying the commandments of Jesus. When he tells the disciples at the end of Matthew, and he says to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them not just gospel ethics, not just, not just propositional facts, not just truths about heaven and hell. He says, teaching them to obey all that I commanded you. Jesus is concerned about the manner of life his followers live. And you can't live for self and live for Christ. So if we are to come after Christ, we are to deny self. This means that your life is in God's hands practically. We understand that God is the creator of all things, but we're talking about practically living. God owns my life. Gospel commitment requires that all of life be orchestrated through an understanding of denying self. This means life choices, the school that I go to, the job that I have, the relationships, what I do, what I don't do, living for others. I guess in the biggest summary, we'd say that Jesus is Lord. And we live that out. We belong to another. So the first criteria to be a disciple of Jesus is to deny self. Second is to die to self. Take up your cross. This is radical. 
Now remember, we're in the first century here, and what is going on in the most gruesome means by which someone would die and receive a death sentence is by crucifixion. The Romans were, 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 did it to scare people. You scare them straight, you would be crucified. When a, in the first century, when a person was sentenced to death by crucifixion, they had to take the cross beam and they had to throw it upon their shoulder. And after they were sentenced to death, they had to carry their own instrument of death out of the city to where the crucifixion was to take place. They were to walk this trail of tears. They were to walk this, this, this death row sentence all the way out to their execution. It was a death march. This is what Jesus has in mind with this statement. When he says to carry or to take up his cross, it is to put the beam upon your shoulder and start the death march. Now remember, Jesus does not require of his followers where he has not already been. He too would carry his cross and suffer and die so that we would be made right with God. So when Jesus calls on them to carry your cross, it's because he's going to carry his cross and he's going to suffer well until the end. And he's going to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's going to cry out, it is finished. He's going to bear the wrath of his people bear the wrath for his people, and he's going to give them his righteousness through his death and resurrection. And he calls upon his followers, be prepared. Not in the same sense of what Jesus dies by satisfying the wrath of God so that we would have life in him, but be prepared to practically live a life and be ready to die. Jesus is literally saying, be prepared to die if you want to be a disciple. Once a man was sentenced and they took the crossbeam and it was placed upon his shoulders, there was no reversing it. There was no, once you began that path and that march, there was no turning around. You couldn't say, I don't think I want to do this anymore. You aren't afforded that option. Jesus says in another place, if any man puts his hand to the plow and turns back, he is not fit for the kingdom of heaven. It is a single-minded focus. To carry your cross is to have the cross ever before you. Leaving the life behind because it is always the cross before the crown. There is no turning back. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 17, that we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. Understand this gospel commitment, it is suffering before glory. It is the order that Paul gives us. It is the order that Christ lived. It is the order that you are called to. It has been granted to you, not only to, to believe on his name, but to suffer for his sake, as he says to the Philippians. And so when he talks about carry your cross, to a lesser degree, it means to endure hardships. But Jesus is not actually saying that. He's saying be willing to leave it all. Leave your life upon the altar. We only truly start living for Christ when we strap the cross to our shoulder. And we say, whatever you want, Lord, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, unto thee. I am yours, even if it costs me my life. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross of Christ I cling. And in doing so, in obedience to this command, then we identify with Paul in Galatians 2.20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. 
And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's the Christian life. That's what it means to be a disciple, to be a follower of Jesus. I want us to notice something here that Jesus does or what Jesus doesn't do. Jesus does not lower the standards in order to gain a bigger following. He says, refuse yourself, run from yourself, resist yourself, put a cross on your back and be prepared to die. It will cost you everything. Brothers and sisters, we must communicate the same gospel, the same commitment. We are not a sleek salesman trying to get people in the back door. We tell them the truth. It will cost you everything. And finally, he says here of this point, to devote yourself, to follow me. He's saying, emulate me, obey me, obey my teaching. In a sense, go all the way back to his prediction. Be ready to suffer many things and be rejected and possibly even killed to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And this is the gospel commitment that Jesus calls on everyone to have, not an elite 12. No, it was to the disciples and the crowds, everyone to hear. There's not a level of Christianity we get to when we hit this commitment. This is the minimum standard he calls us to, to be his followers. There's no room for straddling the fence here. There's no part-time followers of Jesus Christ. I remember in my teenage years, I was really wrestling with obedience to the gospel and the desires of my flesh, and I struggled greatly. And I remember having conversation with my father, and he's like, listen, you are living a hypocritical life. You are something on a Sunday, and you are something else during the week. You can't do that. You can't, you can't, you can't be two people. You can't wear the mask. And I said, I know. And I remember wrestling with this, and I was struggling so hard. And I looked at him, and I said, I understand the commitment to the gospel. That God in Christ wants all of my life. And I'm not willing to do that. So I'm all out. And I went through a wilderness phase where I walked away like a prodigal son. Because I understood even there at 16 years old, there's no halfway Christians. And by God's grace, he arrested me. And he brought me back. And I was ready, ready to look at this to whatever it takes, Lord. Whatever you want from my life, just don't make me a pastor. <laughs> I said that. <laughs> Be careful what you ask for and don't ask for. But what he's saying here, Jesus is saying, all in or all out. Where are you right now? 75% won't do. 88% won't do. Are you all in? Are you wrestling with that? Okay. Fight. Wrestle. Make your calling and election sure. But remember this, beloved, it will cost you everything. Do you have one foot in the world? And maybe one foot with Christ? Let me just exhort you. That's exactly where Satan wants you. He doesn't want you to be just some sort of atheist, more of an apathetic follower, a part-time Christian, a fence straddler. Satan's kingdom is full of Sunday morning Jesus people. It's all in. It will cost you everything. Your commitment to Christ requires all of your life. Now we must ask the fundamental question, why? 
why would any person sign up for this? What would compel a rationally thinking person to say, hey, a life of denying self and being willing to die sounds like a great idea to devote myself to this crucified Jew 2,000 years ago who made some radical claims to be God and supposedly there's a a resurrection. What would cause me to want to do that? I like my life. I like my job. I like my income. I like my comfortability. I like my middle-class suburban American way of life. Why would I ever want to do that? this? Why would I be willing to pay such a cost? Jesus gives us the answer. Don't hear it from me, hear it from him. Verses 35, 36, and 37. And in summary, it's this, because eternity is at stake. Because something greater than your life is at stake, your existence now. Jesus says in verse 35, whoever would save his life, that is to to try to preserve their life, will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Ultimately, what Jesus is saying here is if you're going to put yourself first, you're going to lose. This is the great paradox of Christianity. Lose to win. Die to live. The last shall be first. The first shall be last. Jim Elliott, young missionary, on fire for the Lord, desirous to, to take the gospel to unknown places, to go among the native peoples, to speak the truth of Christ to them in order that they might hear the gospel, that they might believe. He was willing to risk it all. We know the story. He goes down and he reaches this unreached people group. And after first and second visit, he never comes back. The savages is what they would call them. Killed the whole group of missionaries The interesting part of the story is that his wife, Elizabeth, goes down there many years later, ministers to them, and they're converted. Jim Elliott said, he is no fool who gives up that which he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. He was willing to risk it all, and he did. And he paid the price, and he finished well. So verses 36 and 37, Jesus asks two questions. It's the same answer. When he says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but forfeit his soul? Understand, your soul, the soul is eternal. The soul is your life. The soul is all that you are. We aren't bodies. We, we, are, we are souls that have been infused in a body. The soul is eternal. The soul lives forever. And Jesus is saying, and he's saying, what, would you, what, what is the point? Why would you give up all of your life, all of your existence in the end to forfeit your soul What does it profit you if you have this whole world? And the answer is nothing. You could have the bank account of Bill Gates. You could have have the popularity of, name the celebrities, I don't know. You could be Tom Brady. It doesn't matter. It's all for nothing. If it costs you your soul. Same in verse 37. What can a man give in return for his soul? Nothing. There's an important truth here. You who have been created in the image of God, you are more valuable than everything in this world. This is what Jesus is talking about here. Your soul is worth more than all the riches. Every mind diamond in this world pales in the comparison of your soul. You are of greater value than all the riches of this world combined. Some of you need to hear this this morning. You think of yourself as worthless. 
that you're a nobody, maybe insignificant. You compare yourselves with others, and you're constantly discouraged. Friend, you are an eternal soul of immeasurable value. But if you give yourself to the things of this world, you will lose it all. To forfeit your soul means to give up the certainty of eternal life with God. So here's the point. Here's the point of this whole passage of what Jesus is saying here. To follow Jesus, it will cost you everything in this life. To not follow Jesus, it will cost you everything for eternity. One way or another, it's going to cost you everything. So what will you do? What will you do? What are you doing? Where do you stand this morning? Are you all in? To the believer here among us who is weary and the cross feels heavy upon your shoulder, I want to encourage you to set your eyes on Jesus. Look to Jesus who's gone before you. We follow after him. Press on for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now, believer, you are struggling in the fight. Now is the closest that you have ever been to eternity. You are one step closer now. You are one day closer than yesterday. Be encouraged. Press on. And to you who are not following Jesus in this way, now is the closest that you have ever been to eternity. You are one step closer today than you were yesterday. And that is dangerous. You are flirting with eternity. You are flirting with judgment. Remember, he came the first time as Savior. He is returning as vindicator and judge. Are you living with gospel confusion or gospel commitment? The evidence is found, as we will finish up here now this morning, the evidence is found in our gospel confession. Notice what he says in verse 38. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. Let's just read that passage in reverse. It is as though Jesus says, whoever confesses me, identifies with me, takes a stand for me, is a witness for me, be assured of this. I will confess him before my Father. So that when I come back, to bring my bride home, when I come back to bring the host of the redeemed, you will be among them. That's my promise to you. This is the promise of the second coming of Jesus Christ. For many who were standing there before Christ, they saw the kingdom come in power by the resurrection, the ascension, and what happened on the days of Pentecost, the pouring out of the Spirit. And now the kingdom of God is among us. So this is Peter's gospel confusion, Christ's gospel commitment, and the confession that we are to have, acknowledging Christ before men, not to be ashamed of him and his words, to be bold, to stand firm. And so the disciples all heard this, and the reality is they still didn't get it, as they heard all of these things from Christ. But let me encourage you with these words. They eventually did. Simon Peter, tortured in the Mamertine prison, dragged to Nero's circus, crucified upside down because he did not consider himself worthy to be martyred in the same way as Jesus. Tradition tells us that he watched his wife be crucified first. Andrew, 
ministered in southern Russia, and was eventually tied to an X-shaped cross where he died a slow, painful death over the course of three days. Tradition has it that he preached to the spectators who watched his execution. James was beheaded by Herod. Philip ministered in France, died of crucifixion and stoning. Bartholomew ministered in Armenia, whipped until almost the entirety of his skin was removed, and then they crucified him in agony. Thomas was speared to death by Hindu priests while sharing the gospel in India. Matthew preached Christ in Ethiopia. He was beheaded carrying out the last words he recorded from Jesus. Go and make disciples. James the less, he is thrown off the temple. They break his legs and he had his head crushed for not denying Christ. Thaddeus executed as a martyr with arrows while preaching in eastern Turkey. Simon the Zealot, crucified upside down and then sawn in half, preached Christ in Persia. Matthias ministered to the far north. Upon returning to Jerusalem, he was stoned to death. And Paul, along the Osteen Way, just outside the walls of Rome, he had his head chopped off. They denied themselves, they carried their cross, and they followed him, of whom the world was not worthy. He is no fool who gives up that which he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. Father, I pray that you would grant us radical gospel commitment, repentance where we want comfort and ease. Help us, O Lord, to walk faithfully, Strengthen us in our resolve as we would lean upon one another and upon your word and your promises. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.